Morning everyone. Morning. Morning. As you probably gathered this morning's um, word is from Psalm 130, so if if you'd like to turn to that. Psalm 130. Now, Psalm 130 is commonly referred to as as a a psalm of ascents. And what that means is that's when people were travelling up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. They would sing this. They would would sing this psalm on the way. Uh, It's reckoned that it was... Well, there's lots of discussion about where it is, but one view is is that it was written during the Babylonian exile, when all the people were exiled for Israel into Babylon and it was written there um, but we're going to a wee bit more about that but this is, this is God's word this is Psalm 130 out of the depths I cry to you Lord Lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy if you Lord kept a record of sins Lord who could stand but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you in the old way, we used to say that when I was brought up. It said, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can fear you. The NIV takes a different slant on it. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love, and with him there is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is God's word, and may bless it to our minds and to our hearts this day. Being in the depths and being in dark places, many of us will be familiar with that in life, we've all had different experiences in that. And... um, Recently I just, I just finished a book about a particular fellow who has great experience, or, or had great experience, he's passed now, a fellow called Richard Vermbrand. Some of you might have heard of him, he was a pastor, he was a Romanian pastor. Very, very famous man. And Richard Vermbrand, he was actually born a Jew, he was Jewish born. And uh, he, was, he was in finance and all the rest of it, as he went through his life he came to faith. He came to faith as a young man. Um, through an illness, he took an illness and he was left on his own. And his mind started to wonder where he was going. And, and he actually cried out to God, um, If you're really there, make yourself known to me. That was, it was his last desperate plea to God. And he became a Christian. Which is some jump from being Jewish to being a Christian. Particularly in, in, the, in the early 1900s in Romania and places like that. That was... And the trouble that he got for his family. But his toils didn't stop there. Richard Vernbrand's toils went on because the Nazis invaded Romania. And he had to survive all that. He was a Christian by this point. But as far as the Nazis were concerned, he was still a Jew. So you can imagine the toil and the horror there. And he worked right through the war uh, in Romania. And then when the Germans got chased out... The communists took over. The Soviet Russians came in and then they put in the Romanian communists. And there, the depth and the real darkness of Richard Vernbrand's life really started. Um, In 1947, he was arrested and he spent the next 14 years being tortured, brutalised, starved in prison for his faith because he'd worked in the underground church. And... um, 
Richard Von Brand is a man who truly understood out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. He truly understood that. And I'm going to bring, bring us back to Richard, um, because it's very important. And we can maybe identify with depths of darknesses. It doesn't need to be as dark as what Richard experienced or in the depths that he experienced. We can get that internally. We can get it in our own lives. We can experience things that take us to a, a deep and dark place. And that's what the Psalm's calling out from. Out of the depths. Now, amongst Christians, there's different views about what out of the depths means, what it's referring to. Some say it's a specific incident that the psalmist has experienced and that the psalm can only be taken in that context. Others say that the psalmist is experiencing a personal darkness within himself and he's calling out for there. Others view it just it's just a calamity that's happened to him, something bad's happened. And he's, that's how you read it. There are others on what I would call, who are probably way out left field somewhere, who believe it is a call from the grave. And the less said about that, the better, because they actually use it to pray for the dead, which isn't something that I would do as a reformed Christian. So you can see there's a lot of views on what out of the depths means in this. Um, but what we can probably say for safety is that he's not in a great place. And from the tone of it, you can probably assert that he is, he's feeling alone. He's either actually physically alone or he's feeling emotionally and spiritually and mentally alone. He feels isolated. And that, that's where the out of the depths is coming from. It, it could be similar to... You know, different situations happen to people in life. There's, there's people who's, who've suffered from depression. I've experienced that myself. And you can be in a full room. And you can feel like the loneliest person in the world. You can feel so isolated. So that's, that's, that's one way of looking at it. Now, he then from that out of the depths when he cries to God, he's very confident when he calls to God. He more or less says to God, listen to me. It's a nice way of putting it, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleading. <laughs> right? It's a nice way of putting it, you say, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. It's just quite a, you know, it's quite a, a strong thing to be able to say when you're in a that deep, dark place. And I'll come back to that because there's a, there's, there's a, there's a reason behind that. And he's in this, this depth but strangely in the depths when he asks God to listen to him, he doesn't ask God to listen to him about his moans and his complaints about where he is. He takes a really strange approach when he's speaking to God. Because what he does is he starts talking to God about people's position in relation to God and sin. So he's in a great place, but the thing that's uppermost in his mind is, if you, O God, kept a record of sin... Who could stand? Now, I don't know about you folks, but see, when I'm not in a great place, I'm usually only ever focused on poor me. How could this happen to me? Or I'm focused on the people that put me there. I'm usually moaning about that and how, how unfair all this is. I'm certainly not thinking about how sinful I am. And I'm not really caring about anybody else's sin unless they're hurting me. So I, I found that really, it's really, really powerfully, you know, 
that he's in a bad place but yet the most important thing to him is this relationship this relationship where he is and everybody else is in relation to God and sin and you think to yourself well, how, does, how does that come about there's a general principle about being isolated about being in the depths and if we've all been there you generally do a lot of thinking on it don't you when you're in a dark place or you're in a great place you tend to do a lot of thinking and at first you start thinking about where you are in a sense of the, the practicalities of it but as time goes on I don't know if any of you folk have noticed it but I've noticed with me the reality of the situation and the truth of the situation starts to come through and the honesty comes through it's a principle, believe it or not it's a principle behind incarcerating people in prison it's not just a punishment it's to isolate them away and make them think about what they've done even the justice system knows that if you put somebody away for a long enough time and, and keep them incarcerated hopefully in that period of time they will think about what they've done and hopefully change their view and that's what happens when you're in a deep dark place you tend to think a lot and what he's thought about has brought him to a place that the most important thing that when he's crying to God for where he is isn't about his troubles it's about the distance and the relationship that sin causes between him and God sin's uppermost in his mind now I mentioned to you that when he cried out to God he was very very confident in that he was very very confident in how he cries out to God and there's a reason behind that because it's strange to think that someone who's in a dark place who is aware of their sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people about how can you be confident before God because as soon as I became aware of my sin I wanted to run away and hide I don't want to even talk to God I want to hide in a corner and not even think about it but there's something the psalmist knows there is something he knows about God that gives him that confidence to speak to him even though he knows he's a sinful man and it's in verse 4 but with you there is forgiveness he knows that God is a forgiving God regardless of how bad he is God is a forgiving God and that's what gives him the confidence to step forward and say to God look you need to listen to me it's very very particular to the Jewish faith it's very very particular Jewish prophets Jewish people they do not have a fear about facing God up Christians we tell you whoa they don't have a fear if you ever notice that the prophets they make deals with God think about Sodom and Gomorrah God says I'm going to destroy it oh no wait a minute if I can find you somebody can make... they're confident in their facing up God and this psalmist is no different he faces God because he knows he's a forgiving God and he knows that he's a forgiving God from his experience as a Jew as an Israelite he knows that because his people have a sacrificial system where they can make sacrifices and God will put off the punishment he will forgive the punishment if they do this 
So he knows that, he knows from experience that he's a forgiven God. He also knows from the scriptures that God is forgiven. He knows his people have failed God time and time and time and time again. Yet God has brought them back and allowed them to prosper time and time again. So he knows God is forgiving. That's what gives him the confidence to step into his presence and say, listen to me. Listen to me, God. Now he knows he's sinful, he knows he can be forgiven. You would think that would be the end of it, wouldn't you? You'd think, well, I'm sinful, but God forgives me. We're all good. But it doesn't say that. It says that what he does is he waits on the Lord. What are you waiting for? Sinful, forgiven, end of story, carry on. No. I wait upon the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. Before we can understand what he's meaning there, we've got to understand about the kind of waiting he's talking about. Now, he's not talk- the psalmist in the depths is not talking about the kind of waiting that we would do waiting for a bus. You know, I'll just wait here at the bus stop. This bus will come. It might come. If it doesn't come, another one will come in a minute. It's not that kind of wait. It's nothing like that. Because he's not in a great place. It's a deeply, deeply, deeply felt yearning, seeking, searching that he's got. That's why it says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. In the translation that I would generally use, the ESV, it says, my soul waits for the Lord. It means he's waiting. It's not a casual, I'll just wait here for five minutes and if nothing happens I'll move on. It's a deep yearning for God. That's what's there. It's more like, unlike the bus stop one, (laughs) you've probably got a picture of this in your mind. Now the old World War II movies, right? Like the Dam Busters and 633 Squadron and all that. All the World War II movies, right? So the planes all take off, they go on the, the big mission and they go away and they do all the dangerous when they fly through flak and all that. But sort of near the end of the movie what happens is they shoot to a scene at the airfield and the, the wing commander and the commodore's all there and there's usually a couple of wafts there and all that. And they're all watching. It's always a, a sign of an airfield and there's always trees at the end of it. But they're all watching the skies to see how many aircraft are coming back. And there's a tension in the air because they're listening, they're listening. Can I hear an engine? Is that? Did I see something? Did I see something come through the clouds here? And you can feel the tension because they're worried, they're seeking, they're hoping that the people that they love, the people that they like, their colleagues are going to return. It's that level of watching and waiting. It's that level. That he's seeking God. That's what the psalmist is doing. And he's, he's seeking and yearning for God to draw close. For God to arrive in his heart like the dawn. Because that's what strengthens his faith. See that yearning for God. I've got to say this. In Western Christianity there is a very, very bad habit of I'll wait and see if God turns up. I'll wait and see if God turns up. Because we're a consumerist society. The psalmist doesn't wait to see if God turns up. He seeks him. He yearns for him. He prays to him. And that's what strengthens his faith. 
no sitting back in his hands. John Calvin puts it like this. John Calvin says this. Observe, however, that we must have that confident assurance that those who seek the Lord, wait upon the Lord, will find him ready to forgive. His confidence and belief that he is forgiven is strengthened by his constant yearning for God to find him, to seek him, to pull him in. He's confident and he cries out for his soul to God because it's been made clear to him in his isolation that he's a sinful man not just him, everybody run about him and he waits on God now look, Richard Wurmbrand how long do you wait for God? how long are you going to wait? people in this country have no wait Five minutes for a bus, they'll phone a taxi. They're not going to wait for a bus, they're certainly not going to wait for God. Richard Vernbrand, 14 years he waited on the Lord in the depths. The Israelites, 400 years in Egypt. <laughs> 70 years in exile. How long would you wait on the Lord? How can you wait that long? I know I've not got great patience. How does he wait that long? Because he has hope. He has hope. That's how he can keep going. And his hope's in verse 5. And in his word I put my hope. It's in the word of God that's what maintains him through the long, long, long waiting it's not his patience it's the word of God it's what what God said it's the revelation of who God is that keeps him going in the word of God it's the revelation of what God has done that keeps him going he knows what God has done before he knows God brought them out of slavery He knows who God is. But more importantly, the word that God reveals what God is going to do, what he will do for him. Because God's made good in his first couple of promises, so he knows that his next promise is going to be a certainty as well. And that's what keeps him going through, waiting on the Lord through the darkness. So what does the word of God tell him about God that keeps him going? What is it the word that actually says about God? It's in the psalm. We've seen from verse 4, it tells him that God is forgiving. So that gives him confidence to stand before God and talk to him. He knows he's not going to get struck down. God is forgiving. The word of God in verse 7 For with the Lord is unfailing love God is loving God is forgiven God is loving He's in a dark place and somebody's telling him I forgive you and I love you But the big bit that really knocks it into the championship league Verse 8 
he will redeem Israel. God is a redeemer. You are in a dark place. You are in the depths. I will get you out of there. I will buy you back out of there. There's three things that the word of God tells him in that psalm. He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. And he's a redeemer. Does that sound like anybody we might know? Someone who's forgiving. Someone who's loving. And someone who's prepared to redeem us. He jumped off the page of me. (laughs) This is written nearly a thousand years before Jesus Christ stepped on the earth. The characteristics of God that were clear in the word of God are clear in Jesus Christ. Now all these characteristics of God are equally important. His forgiving, his loving and his redemption. They're all important. But I'm going to put to you that probably the one characteristic of God that gives him the most strength and the most hope is the fact that he's going to redeem him. And I'll, I'll, I'll put my argument for this. You see, forgiveness can be done at a distance. You can forgive somebody at a distance. You can forgive someone and not speak to them ever again. And you can forgive them repeatedly. Some people have been in a difficult situation where they've had to forgive someone who's maybe passed through this world. That person does not have to be present for you to forgive them. Loving is similar. Loving can be done at a distance. You can love somebody at a distance. Ask anybody who's got family on the other side of the world. Thanks <laughs> away. You still love them. They don't have to be present. And you don't have to be present. Ask any teenager that's got their first crush and never told anybody. And their first crush is well there and they've not spoke a word, but they're oh! Right? You can love somebody at a distance. Redemption is a totally different ball game. Redemption is different. It's a different characteristic. Simply because redemption means to buy back. It's to buy something back. To redeem something. Someone has to pay someone for something. There's an action involved. There's always an action with redemption. There's an action involved. Somebody has to get up close and personal to do the buying back. If you're a smart aleck like me, you'll go, ah, but wait a minute, you can buy things through the internet. You've still got to get up close and personal, because you know what you've got to do? You've got to press a button that sends all your personal details to that person. You've still got to get up close and personal with redemption. To do the buying back. And there's another aspect of redemption that makes it different from forgiveness and loving. See, 
You can forgive somebody and they don't change. They still keep doing what they've always done. Right? They don't move from the place that they were in. You can even love somebody and they don't change or don't move from the place that they're in. They still keep doing what they're doing. But redemption's different. Because there's a buying back. You're bought out of the place you were in and you're put in the place it's marked out for you. You're bought back. There was a, and back means there was originally a place marked for you and you've been brought back to it. So that's why I think that redemption would have given the psalmist the greatest comfort. That's why. Because it's so different. It's an up close and personal experience. And you know, little did he know that when he was saying those words all those years ago in the depths about a loving God, forgiving God and a redeeming God, that they would be echoed nearly a thousand years later in the words of John. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins like the psalmist has done he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins like the psalmist said he would be and purify us from all unrighteousness if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us my dear children I write to you this to you so that you will not sin but if anybody does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world he will not only redeem me he will redeem Israel he will not only redeem us he will redeem the whole world those words were written a thousand years apart if anybody ever tells you that the bible <laughs> was concocted by people I'd like to see how they done that one a thousand years apart the psalmist understood in his depths the mechanisms that God would apply to redeem the world he didn't know the name that was going to be attached to it he didn't know it was going to be Jesus but he knew what God was going to do because God had said he would do it in his word and with our Lord Jesus coming among us that promise was fulfilled the psalmist found that in the depths he'd come to see that the most important thing is not his predicament where he's stuck or how hard that is the most important thing is his salvation his salvation not only his but everyone's so he cries out to God he cries out to God in confidence knowing that he will be redeemed by God a God who is a forgiving and loving God and he knows this because the word of God tells him the word of God clearly tells him who God is what he has done and what he will do The psalmist sits in the depths in those promises. That's what he does. 
He sits in the depths on the promises of God. And you know what? Technically speaking, the psalmist waited a thousand years for God to come true on the promises. That's how long you can sit in the depths if you put your trust and faith in the word of God. You can sit for a thousand years. Like the psalmist. Now for us, what does that mean for us? Unlike the psalmist, we are in a great position. We are in a fantastic position. The psalmist could only see how God was going to do it. He didn't see who was going to do it. Who was going to redeem the world. He didn't see him. We get to see him. We live on this side of the cross. The psalmist lived on that side of the cross. And before anybody gets upset... The cross, the power of the cross, the redeeming power of the cross walks forwards and back through history. It applies to Abraham as much as it applies to a guy that's going to be born in a hundred years' time. It works back and forward. So when our Lord redeemed us on that cross, he redeemed that psalmist. Who was sitting a thousand years ago? It's incredible power, isn't it? Incredible power. A man that had committed sins a thousand years ago was saved on the cross. Incredible. Incredible. But we get to see the cross of Calvary. We get to see the forgiving, loving, redeeming Son of God. We get to see Him. The God who got up close and personal with sin and death. Jesus faced up sin and death. Sin and death demanded their price and he said, I'll pay that for them. I will pay that. You think of how much sin has been in the world. That's a big monster to face up. You think how much death has been in the world. That's a massive monster to face. And our loving, forgiving, redeeming Saviour Jesus Christ faced those two monsters on the cross. For us. He done that for us. He paid the price to buy us back. So it begs a couple of questions here. Like the psalmist, have I seen my sin? Do I see my sin? Am I aware that I'm sinful? Or do I do what most people in this world do? Two things. I'm a good guy. I'm alright. I don't cause anybody any harm. And convince myself, get a wee trick in the mind that says I'm not a bad guy. I pay my bills, I pay my taxes, I do this, I don't fight my neighbours, no, I'm a good person. Or, just completely ignore the fact altogether that it's not an issue. Because if I haven't acknowledged, or if I haven't even seen my sin, it's going to be first choice. Everything I've said up until now means nothing. If you haven't seen your own sin and you're not aware of it, Everything I've said means nothing. It's exactly what John says. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If you don't think you're a sinner, if you've never seen your own sin. And there's also that other wee trick that we play on ourselves with sin is, oh I am a sinner, I tell, I tell a lie, know again, I tell a wee white lie, I tell a wee that. Know that, partially acknowledging it. What about the hate that's in your heart? What about the resentments that are in your heart? What about the murder that's in your heart? What about the lust that's in your heart? Don't hear you acknowledging up to that. Because I certainly don't put my horn up to any of them. Not in public. But God didn't mess about when he showed me them. And he flattened me. If you haven't seen your own sin like the psalmist, and I make no apologies for this, earnestly pray to God to show you it. If you're living your life thinking people have harmed me, poor me, poor me, poor me, you're no doing what the psalmist done. You're moaning about your situation, you're no dealing with the real problem. And the real problem is our own sin. Pray to God that he would show you. It's the gate out. It's the door out. If you don't know you're no well, you'll no go to the doctor's. If you have seen your sin and you know you're a sinner and you're a convicted sinner and I don't mean it happened 16 years ago and you've never thought about it again every living day every living day I guarantee you for the second I open my eyes and I'm not the only one the clock's ticking and when I'll make my first commit my first sin even if it's gone I think I'll phone the up and tell them I'm no well so they can lie in my bed in there for a longer. That's how automatic it is. If you have seen your sin, the question for us then is, are you waiting for God? Are you yearning for your Redeemer? Are you seeking Him? Is your heart scanning the skies to see if you can see Him? Because that's where you need to be as a sinner. You need to be yearning for God, for seeking for Him. And the one way to do that is in the word of God. In God's word. That's where the psalmist found them. That's where you need to find them. That's why God's word is so, so, so important to us. It was important to the psalmist a thousand years ago in the depths. And it's every bit as important today. Because the Jesus that we're seeking, the only one, God's word's clear about it, the only one who can redeem you is Jesus. I don't even discuss any other faiths. I don't even get into it. It is a pointless discussion. There is only one who can redeem. And he's Jesus. And if you're seeking him and yearning for him and looking for him, there's one place you'll find him. In the word of God. He's in the word of God. Go there. That's where you'll find him. Because in there... He tells us who he is, what he has done, and what he will do for us. That's what Jesus is. That's who he is. And just to close, the word of God was so important to the psalmist a thousand years ago, and it was equally important to Richard Vernbrand when he was thrown into a cell in 1947. 
And here's a wee, if you bear with me. Partway through Richard's incarceration, his body had been tortured and, and, and brutalised that much and starved that he contracted TB. And that's, that was a death sentence. And basically what they done is they threw them into what they called the death room. It was just a room with beds, no blankets, and they just threw them in there. And the average person lasted about two weeks. Richard Vernbrand survived for two years. Two years. And do you know his only concern was the state of his own soul and those of the people who were dying round about him. And there was everybody. There was communists. There was Jews. There was atheists. There was lapsed Christians. There was Catholics. There was everybody. And his one priority was preaching the gospel that he'd been beaten and battered for so long and tortured that even his memory of the word that he had learned and had known and loved so much was gone. Even the faces of his family were diminishing in his memory. And then one day, a fellow called, they all had nicknames in it, and this guy was called the musician. One day the musician surprised everyone in the room when he extracted from his cast a small tattered book. Where did you get that? Richard asked. Outside of his visions, he hadn't seen a book in years. It's the gospel according to John, said Avram. I managed to hide it in my cast when the police came for me. Would you like to borrow it? Richard handled the gospel as if it were a bird with broken wings. The brittle pages were more precious to him than any medicine. He turned each page amazed and refreshed by its contents. His eyes chanced on passages he hadn't seen since his imprisonment. The punishment for being caught with a Bible was worth even a few seconds of reading. Richard didn't care if they executed him. He held a fountain of life in his hands. And after taking a soul-satisfying drink, he passed the book around the room. In the weeks that followed, they were spent discussing the gospel. Prisoners memorised its paragraphs, mesmerised by its simplicity. Numerous conversions unfolded, <coughs> including the conversion of Professor Pop, the atheist. It's a man who spent 14 years in the depths. And his sole concern is the condition of him and his fellow prisoners in relation to God and the thing that kept them going was the word to God we need to ask ourselves is that how I see the word to God is that how important it is to me this is God's word in me he bless it to our hearts this day